All right, we're in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses of this uh, chapter. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk Get drunk at night, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing." Let me start with a question. Might be a familiar question because it's the same question I asked you last week um, at about this time. Are you watching for Christ's return? Are you watching for Christ's return? And uh, I won't make say it out loud, but you know the answer uh, in your heart. Are you watching for Christ's uh, return? Uh, the Thessalonian believers that this letter was written to were watching. For Christ's return, they would have definitely answered that question without hesitation. Yes, uh, that they were watching for Christ's return. It was a part of their life. It was what they were thinking about, um, uh, expecting Christ to return. Uh, let me ask you another question. Let me ask you another question. Why are you watching for Christ's return? Why are you watching for Christ's return? And that uh, assumes he answered yes to the first question, which I hope you all did. Uh, why are you w- watching for Christ's uh, return. Are you watching for his return because you know you're saved and you're longing for your salvation to be revealed along with your savior who uh, is coming? And so your watchfulness for his return is flowing out of your assurance of salvation. You're certain that you're saved. And uh, because of that, you're watching for his return. Or is it the opposite? that your watchfulness for his return actually flows out of lack of assurance of your uh, salvation. And it's because you're not sure if you're saved or not uh, that you're apprehensive about Christ's return and you can't stop thinking about it. And that's why you're watching for his uh, return is because you're um, apprehensive and, and fearful about his uh, return. Now, let me ask this question. Does it matter why you're watching for Christ's return, both kinds of watchfulness that I've described, one that flows out of assurance and one that flows out of a lack of assurance, both of them are watchfulness. Both of them are real. Uh, watchfulness, does it really matter? The Lord wants his people to be watchful for his return. Does it matter why uh, they are, are uh, watchful for his uh, return? The Thessalonians' uh, watchfulness flowed out of actually a lack of assurance. And that's what Paul keeps on addressing in this uh, epistle. At least they were being watchful. Isn't that what he commanded? For them to be watchful? Or are they fulfilling what uh, he uh, commanded? 
And the answer to that question, does it matter why you're being watchful, is yes. It uh, it matters. It's actually a very brittle watchfulness that flows out of lack of assurance, that flows out of dread of uh, Christ's return. It's actually a, a kind of watchfulness that actually becomes a, a shadow, becomes a mutation, becomes a perversion of the actual watchfulness that God uh, commanded. It's actually a kind of watchfulness that's a hindrance and not a help to the rest of uh, the Christian life. And so, yes, it matters. Not only that you're watchful, but why you're watchful. And uh, the watchfulness that God actually commands is a watchfulness that flows out of assurance. It flows out of taking him at his word that he's a savior and that he's a savior for sinners uh, like uh, you. And that kind of watchfulness, a watchfulness that flows out of assurance of, of God's word, assurance of your uh, salvation, is uh, a watchfulness that he commanded. It's the real watchfulness that he commanded, and it's a watchfulness that will be a huge help to the rest of your Christian life instead of a hindrance to uh, your Christian life. Well, this is uh, a part two of the, of the uh, message, so we're looking at the last half of the passage that I read, and I'll give you just a uh, simple outline, a two-part outline. So first, um, we'll look at an exhortation to daytime behavior, and we'll talk about what that means when we get to it, daytime behavior. So an exhortation to daytime behavior, that's verse 5 to 7. And then secondly, we'll look at an exhortation to daytime behavior that flows out of assurance, a certain kind of daytime behavior, uh, behavior that flows out of assurance, and that's in verse 8 to 11. So an exhortation to daytime behavior, verse 5 to 7. And an exhortation to daytime behavior that flows out of assurance of salvation, and that's in verse 8 through 11. But before we get to that, let me give you a review of what we did last time. We're kind of picking up in uh, the middle of things here in this passage. Uh, So let me go over what we we did uh, last time. Um, Our passage is about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Can you see that in verse uh, 2? You yourselves know full well that the... Day of the Lord will come just as a thief in the night. So the whole passage is about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, Paul's not the first to talk about it by a long shot. The day of the Lord has a very rich Old Testament background. In other words, the prophets talked about the day of the Lord uh, a lot. And uh, I ran across a good definition of the day of the Lord, a good concise one from a good Bible student last time. I'll give it to you again. It's the day when God will intervene in history to vindicate his chosen people, destroy his enemies, and establish his kingdom. That's the, a good, that's a good definition for the day of the Lord. It's the day when God intervenes in history to vindicate his chosen people who are normally uh, hidden. It's not real clear who his chosen uh, people are. Uh, usually, in fact, and, and they might even be persecuted maybe. Uh, but in the day of the Lord, he's going to act, he's going to intervene in history to vindicate his chosen people. So it's clear to all who his people are. Destroy his enemies. So he's no longer saving up wrath against his enemies, um, but he's pouring it out in the day of uh, the Lord. And establish his kingdom, which we're praying it's going to come. Uh, but in the day of the Lord, we're not going to be praying that it's going to come because it's going to be here. Um, uh, and so that's a, a good definition. That it's the day when God will intervene in history to vindicate his chosen people, destroy his enemies, and establish his uh, kingdom. And I made the point last time, perhaps you'll remember, I hope, if you're here, um, that the day of the Lord, the way it's used in the Bible, it's, it doesn't refer to a 24-hour period, 
but rather the way it's used in scripture refers to a, a, a lengthy time period, the day of uh, the Lord. And uh, when you put all the pieces together, it's a time period, this day of the Lord, this time of the Lord, this day of the Lord. It uh, begins with a seven-year on-ramp to Christ's actual return to the earth, a lead-up to it. It takes seven years. It's, it's described in Scripture as uh, the Great Tribulation, as a time when God's wrath is poured out upon the earth leading up to the return of Christ. And then, the, So the day of the Lord starts with that seven-year period, and then it also includes what Scripture uh, speaks about, the 1,000-year reign of Christ upon the earth. And so all of that is included in the, this time period that, that is uh, coming, this day of the Lord. And so uh, the day of the Lord would have been familiar to Paul and also familiar to uh, the Thessalonians. So he writes to him here in this letter at the end of chapter 5 to tell them, you're right about the day of the Lord. You're right and you're wrong. You're right. Um, you're right in much of what you're, you're believing about the day of the Lord, but wrong in one significant way. He says to them, you're right that the day of the Lord is going to arrive without warning. In other words, there's going to be no way to predict its arrival and it's going to arrive suddenly, even for Christians. There's no, no way that Christians are going to say, well, I, I think it's about ready to come now. It's going to come. That's why Christians are to be expecting it always. So the day of the Lord, and it starts with that seven year period of God's wrath being poured out. Uh, on uh, the earth, it starts suddenly. And, and so he says to them, you know full well, you know correctly that the day of the Lord will come. It's going to arrive just like a thief in the night, not giving uh, any advance notice, just suddenly uh, coming. So he says, you're right about that. You don't need anybody to write to you about that. And then you're right that the day of the Lord is going to bring harm to those who fall into it. Um, for one, I think it's going to indicate those who who go into the day of the Lord, it's going to indicate that they're not saved because the uh, rapture that's talked about, the catching up of believers, I, I believe, and I think the Thessalonians believe this too, rightly, uh, that that's going to happen at the beginning of the seven-year period when all who are in Christ are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in uh, the air uh, to be with him until his return to earth at the end of the uh, seven-year period. And so the day of the Lord is going to bring harm to those who remain and live on into it, one, by indicating that they're not saved, and second, by being like a trap that's sprung, that they can't escape from, as God's wrath is uh, poured out. And so he says, you're right uh, about that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be while they're saying peace and safety, destruction is going to come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not be able to escape. There's going to be no uh, escape uh, from it. So he says, you're right about all that. You're right about all that. But here's what you're wrong about. The day of the Lord isn't going to harm you. It isn't going to harm you because he knew that they were saved. He knew that they were true uh, believers. And so he says to them, the day of the Lord is not going to bring about your worst fear. It's when it comes. It's not going to reveal to you that you aren't saved while also plunging you right into the beginning of God's uh, of God's wrath. It's not going to reveal to you that here in Thessalonica, we've been trying to be Christians, but we're not doing it right because people have been caught up to meet the Lord in other places, but not here in uh, Thessalonica. And so Paul says to them, uh, there's one significant way in which they're wrong about the day of the Lord. And he says this in verse 5. And I, th I think he says this to them very uh, tenderly. Uh, he says uh, to them, well, I'll start in verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. The day isn't going to, it isn't going to harm you when it comes, because you're not sons of darkness, 
but rather your sons of light, meaning they're saved. They're saved. And then he says this, your sons of day, your sons of day. And that's where we stopped. We stopped right at verse five. So that's kind of where we're picking up uh, here with this, with him telling them that they are sons of uh, day. Now, when he tells them that they're sons of day, it's already a play on words because uh, basically what he's saying is that they're sons of light. They're saved. Uh, they're sons of light, and that's what he means, but he, he puts it in a different way. You're sons of light. Yes, you're sons of day, and I, he says that to match, to be a, a play on words for what he's talking about, the day of the Lord. And so uh, when the day of the Lord comes, it's like you belong. You belong there. Uh, it's not going to harm you, but you're sons of light. In fact, you're sons of day. Your sons of day, your sons of the day of the Lord is uh, what he's uh, uh, speaking about. And so it's already a, a play on words in the passage as he goes on. And that's what we're going to do uh, this morning. He makes it even more of a play on words because he's going to tell them because you're sons of day, you need to put on daytime behavior. You need to put on the activities that uh, that are that are, are typical of uh, the day. And so we come to now our first point for uh, our outline is an exhortation to daytime behavior, an exhortation to daytime behavior. Uh, it's a it's a truism. It's a truism that for some reason, people feel better about sinning at night than they do during the day. Uh, now, maybe, maybe you have a job and you have to be out and about in the middle of the night, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong uh, with that. But you may see things that you wouldn't see during the day. People feel less inhibited uh, at night to uh, sin uh, during uh, uh, during the night. And so it's, it's a truism. It's not always true, but it's a truism. It's generally uh, true that people feel better about sinning at night. And there's sayings that come about this, like a, like a good parenting saying, nothing worthwhile happens after midnight. It's probably pretty 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 good rule of thumb uh, to follow. People speak of a nightclub. And uh, there's probably a lot of things going wrong, uh, going on there that are sinful, you know. And there's a reason they don't call it a day club; they call it a night club, you know. Um, police are busy at night. Police that work the night shift are probably busier in some ways than police that work uh, during uh, the day. Proverbs chapter seven uh, speaks of the uh, the the, uh, the harlot, the strange woman, the foreign woman, and she preys on the. Um, the naive, the, the, the man without wisdom, she comes to him by night. She comes to him by night. That's when the temptation is uh, the greatest, is when she comes by uh, night. And so people feel more comfortable about sinning at night. And I think there's an obvious reason for that that's ready at hand. Um, at night, is, you're more able to act without being observed without being seen, or, or at least maybe even you just feel like you're, you're not being seen by uh, others. And so people act uh, more restrained in general when the sun is shining, when their deeds can be seen uh, by others, and they act less restrained um, at night. And so Paul picks up on this as he calls them sons of day, sons of day, and encourages them. He says, we're not of night, and we're not of uh, darkness. He says, all of you are sons of light and uh, sons of day. And it's one or the other. It's one or the other. I hope you uh, 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 catch that. He doesn't say, now you are sons of day, but some of you are kind of caught between. You're somewhere in the twilight zone. Um, no, he says, uh, you all are sons of light. He's talking to believers. And sons of day were not of night. 
We're not of the darkness. We're not, we're not uh, of that uh, at, at any, uh, in any sense, but we're uh, sons of uh, day. And so he says, verse 6, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and uh, sober. He says, since you're sons of day, uh, you should do daytime behavior. No, no, uh, catch, catch what he says uh, here and catch the order in which he says it. He doesn't say do the behaviors of the day in order to become sons of the day. No, he says it the uh, opposite way. It's because you're sons of day. That's why you should uh, avoid um, uh, the deeds of the night and put on the deeds of the day. And so you have that word, therefore, in verse uh, 6. So then, because of who you are, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Now, what does he mean by all these things? Uh, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and uh, sober. Paul's not speaking here of literal sleep. He's not telling Christians, don't go to sleep. The Bible says a lot of good things uh, about sleep. It talks about the, the working man uh, whose sleep is sweet to him. He falls into bed um, having worked, and, uh, and that's the way God uh, uh, created things. Uh, the wicked are not able to rest, it says Proverbs 4, verse 16. Or Psalm 127, it's part of the picture of the righteous man that God gives to him even in his sleep. So the righteous man, he's, he's sleeping, he's doing nothing. And his God is awake to bless him. And so uh, sleep, it's, it's, it's okay for you to sleep. That's not what he's saying here when he says, because you're uh, sons of day, let us not sleep as uh, the others uh, do. He's rather using sleep metaphorically. Don't be asleep at the wheel spiritually. Spiritually. That's what he's talking about when he says, because you're sons of day, let us not sleep as others do. To be asleep in this sense, it's a figurative sense, not a literal sense, of sleep would be to be indifferent to spiritual realities. In fact, God says that about his people in the Old Testament. There's a spirit of stupor, a spirit of sleep that's been poured out of them. They're they're numb to uh, the spiritual realities. They're numb to the word of God. They're numb to uh, the conscience. So to sleep would be to be indifferent to spiritual realities Paul says, since your sons of day act like uh, day, not by sleeping spiritually as others do, as the rest. Paul talked um, in chapter 4 about the rest who grieve as those who have no hope when death comes. It's unbelievers who are asleep uh, to these things. And so Paul says, since you're not sons of darkness, you're not sons of night, but you're sons of day, be spiritually awake. That's what he says. Do not sleep as others do, but let us watch. Let us be alert. Let us watch. And let us be Sober. Uh, let us let us be uh, s- uh, sober. And so uh, he refers to uh, watchfulness. It would refer to watchfulness for Christ's return. But actually, it's it's, it's almost the whole Christian life that is uh, covered by uh, being uh, watchful, being alert against all the assaults of sin and uh, of temptation. To be watchful, like people are when they're uh, in in the daytime, they're awake uh, and watchful, and then to be Sober, to be clear-minded, to be not under the influence of anything that's going to uh, enslave you, and so uh, these are uh, behaviors of those in uh, the day, in the in the day. So he's giving spiritual exhortation for for kind of the whole Christian life that's uh, covered, uh, but he's using it in this play on words. He's encouraging to daytime uh, behavior, 
And he clinches it with this observation in verse 7. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk get drunk uh, at night. And so he's speaking literally here, but he's, he's again, he's using this as a, a play on words. Sleeping is a time that's fitting for, for night people, for what people do at night, as well as drunkenness is what uh, people do at uh, night. Um, on the day of Pentecost, the um, people that were observing thought that uh, maybe the apostles were drunk. That's why they were uh, speaking in tongues. And um, Peter spoke up to tell them that's not what's going on, but uh, something else. But, and one of the things that uh, Peter said is to tell them what time it was. It's only the third hour of the day. Uh, it's not the time to be drunk, even drunkards uh, to be drunk. You may not think uh, well of us. You may think we're drunks, but we're, you shouldn't think that badly of us because it's only the third hour of the day. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 13 Peter indicts the false uh, teachers that he's writing against that they even are those who carouse and revel in the daytime. And so that's a, a really a, a terrible uh, extent of, um, of drunkenness is to do that e- even during the, uh, the daytime. It would be sort of the furthest limits uh, of that. And so uh, Paul just com- uh, completes the picture here uh, by saying, uh, and, and there's a way to get it into their minds as well, those who sleep... Do their sleeping at night, but you don't belong to the night. You belong to the day. And those who are drunk, totally out of it, totally inebriated uh, to anything, are uh, get drunk at night, but you are sons of the day. And so he exhorts them to what's fitting for sons of the day, daytime behavior. And he exhorts them to a daytime behavior. So let me ask you, are you acting like who you are? You're sons of day. If you're in Christ, are you acting like sons of day? Do you live openly? You're not afraid of who's watching you. Live with integrity. Uh, and there's no part of your life that uh, is uh, hidden. Let this passage be a reminder. Let daylight savings be a reminder. You've got one more hour of daylight uh, to contend with by our clock. And let it be a reminder to you that you are a child of the day. And uh, your actions should be uh, a daytime uh, behavior. And so Paul exhorts them. He reminds them of who they are in light of the day of the Lord and um, uh, exhorts them to uh, the behavior that is fitting for uh, Christians. Well, that's not all. That's not all Paul does. He continues here. He exhorts not just to daytime behavior, but he exhorts these believers to daytime behavior that flows out of assurance of salvation. How are you going to have this daytime behavior? Well, Paul says you're to have it, you're to put on this daytime behavior as an overflow of knowing who you are and knowing for certain that you are uh, saved. Verse uh, 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. How? Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He gives another um, exhortation to uh, soberness because we're of uh, the day. And I think that covers uh, the whole Christian life. Uh, And he says you're to do it wearing a certain armor. It's a battle. It's a battle to live uh, the Christian life. And uh, the armor mentions faith, love, and the hope of uh, salvation. It's really to put on assurance of your salvation is what it speaks of. It speaks of faith, hope, and love. 
Uh, Paul's going to write to the Ephesians later, and he's going to make an even more elaborate picture of uh, like a Roman soldier and uh, putting on the armor of God in order to stand in the strength of God in uh, the evil day. But uh, he says you're to be sober, soberness that flows out of assurance, a soberness that comes from standing in God's strength, standing in God's salvation, even in the armor of his uh, salvation. And so he describes it here, uh, two parts of the armor, the breastplate, which covers the most vital spot, the most vital uh, spot. And this breastplate has an inside and an outside. The inside is faith and the outside is love. And so faith works itself out. The inward faith in God's promise in Christ works itself through love. And so he says, put on the breastplate of faith and as a helmet, the hope of uh, the hope of salvation. The helmet is the the crown of uh, the warrior, and it's an especially prominent target for the attacks of uh, the enemy. The 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 helmet. It's uh, and it's hope of salvation is what protects uh, the head. Hope is it's similar to faith. It goes hand in hand with faith. Hope enjoys anticipating what faith believes. And so faith believes that something is yours without seeing it and hope anticipates it with enjoyment. And uh, since faith is such a fragile flower for timid souls like we are, it needs to be buttressed in, a, a, in many ways. Uh, and one of the important ways in which uh, faith is buttressed is it needs to be held up by hope. It needs to be held up by a hope of uh, the future. And uh, this is where the enemy had struck the Thessalonians. Thessalonians were standing uh, as as Christians, and yet their hope uh, had been wounded. Their hope has been wounded, and so they look to the future, and they're, they're not sure there's good in store for them. Their hope has been wounded, and so Paul says, put on the breastplate of faith and hope, and you need also this helmet. You need also the hope of uh, salvation, a sure hope for uh, for believers. I hope you all can come to family camp this year, and that's, that's the... Um, what the theme of family camp is going to be for uh, the messages is hope. A timely message for the Thessalonians, a timely message uh, for us um, for us as well. So he says, having put on the breastplate of faith and, hope and love and as a helmet, the hope of uh, salvation. Talking about assurance of uh, salvation. And then he gives this reason why we can put on that kind of armor, the armor of assurance of salvation and faith and hope and love. Verse 9, 4. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the Thessalonians, God has not destined you for wrath. He includes himself in it too. God has not destined believers for wrath. Um, I like the way one commentary put it. God cherishes no angry purpose against believers. He cherishes no angry purpose against those who are believing in Christ. And so let me tell you this, if you're a believer, something you need to hear, it's something the Thessalonians needed to hear as well. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is not angry with you at all. God is not angry with you at all. He is not destined us for wrath. And so when you look to the future, and you look maybe to the, the future of God's uh, event of God's wrath being poured out on the earth, you're not sure exactly how all the details are uh, to be worked out. You can be sure of this if you're a believer. There's no wrath for you. There's no wrath for you. God has not destined us for wrath. 
So let me tell it. That's what he tells to believers. Let me tell you by implication uh, another thing that uh, you equally need to hear, maybe equally hard to believe if you're not a believer. If you're not a believer, God is angry with you. God is angry with you. If you are a, a believer, he says, God has not destined us for wrath. Uh, but if you're not believing in Christ, God has anger for you. And so when you look to the events of the future, yes, there's coming a time when God's wrath is going to be poured out on the earth. And you don't know how it's all going to work out either. But you can be sure of this, that his wrath is for you if you're not uh, a believer. And so this morning, if you're not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the bad news. God is angry with you and his anger is well-deserved for your sin. In fact, his anger is well-deserved even for the things that you're most uh, proud of. And that's the bad news. And the good news is this, that his forgiveness can be yours before you stand up from your seat uh, this morning. If you abandon all trust in yourself, trust completely in Christ as your substitute, the one who died on the cross and rose uh, from the dead, you can say just as surely as Paul said to the Thessalonians, or as I say to you believers, God has not destined us for wrath. And so you can know this uh, even before you leave your chair uh, this morning. And that's the good news. That's the wonderful news of the gospel of Christ. You can be forgiven for your sin and you can be set free uh, from your sin uh, as uh, as well. So uh, Paul says to the Thessalonians, God has not destined us for wrath, but for receiving salvation. How? How? He's destined us not for wrath, but for receiving salvation. How? Through your good works, through your watchfulness for Christ's return, through your alertness, through your sobriety, through your daytime behavior, he's exhorting to that. If you'll just put it on, that you'll be saved. He's destined us for obtaining salvation through those things. No, he strips all those things away and lays it bare. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he's, he's uh, destined us to obtain salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross in our place. And this is what he says. For obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. He points us back to Christ's intention, his purpose in dying on the cross, and the result of him uh, dying on the cross. And he says, he didn't die for you to make salvation possible for you, to put salvation in your reach if you're, if you're watchful enough, uh, or if you're sober enough uh, in this way. No, he says, he died uh, for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. He died for us that we would live with him. So whatever the events of the, of the future have uh, in store, the result of it is that uh, not that we will um, suffer God's wrath, but that we will live with eternal life and live uh, together with uh, with Christ. And the intention of Christ in going to the cross perfectly represents the heart of his father. That's the heart of his father in sending him. Uh, is He died for us. He was sent to die in our place uh, that we might live forever with him. Now, let me call your attention in verse 10 to this one clause. Let me spend a little bit of time on it. Uh, this problematic cause that has kind of puzzled a lot of interpreters. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That's why he died for us. So that whether we are awake or whether we are asleep, 
uh, we will live together with uh, him. What does that mean? In fact, the the passage would make good sense without that uh, clause there. Just say uh, that he uh, he destined us for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that we will live together with him. And that would be great. That would be great. But he puts this in here, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Let me give you three possible interpretations, and I think they're the only three uh, possible uh, interpretations of this. Uh, one is that it's literal. It's literal. It's talking about literal sleep and literally being awake. And so the thought would be maybe that uh, when Christ returns, and it, maybe it's the, be the middle of the night and you'll be asleep. Uh, and that, that won't be a hindrance to his uh, salvation so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live uh, together with uh, him. I don't think that's what it means. I think that would be kind of a little bit of a, a trite um um, or trivial uh, uh, thing that, that uh, you know the believers can sleep. Uh, we don't have to stay awake uh, in order to be saved at Christ's uh, return. Second idea is that this is figurative. Figurative of what? Well, an idea is that it, this is figurative of death. In which case he'd be making the very same point that he made back in chapter four, because that was uh, an issue uh, there as they were concerned about. Well, what about the people who've died? What about the people who've died? Are they still going to be um, resurrected uh, when uh, Christ uh, returns? And uh, so perhaps that's um, what it means. Uh, and actually, a lot of commentators believe that that's uh, what it means. There's some good reason why that's probably not right, though. Uh, when when sleep is used of death in chapter 4, it uses an entirely different Greek word for sleep. You can't see it in English, but uh, you can see it uh, in Greek very easily um, in uh, chapter 4. And, and he does use sleep as a, a, a picture of um, death for Christians. And he talks to them about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. He uses a totally different word for sleep. When he comes to chapter 5, he uses sleep for uh, being asleep to spiritual realities, being asleep, uh, and he uses a totally different word for that. And that's the word that he uses here. It's the same one that he's been using in uh, chapter uh, uh, 5. And I, I think that's what he is uh, referring to. Who died for us, and this is kind of a shocking point here that he makes, so that whether we are awake or uh, asleep, we will live together with him. He's encouraging them to daytime behavior. But he's saying he died for you that whether you've, you've put on that daytime behavior sufficiently or not, he died for you in order that you might uh, be might live together with him. Now, you can see why commentators are a bit hesitant to uh, adopt that uh, interpretation, uh, because it seems like he's undermining his own point. He's saying, I want you to adopt daytime behavior. Uh, I, I want you to act not as those who are spiritually asleep but as those who are spiritually awake and even watching for uh, Christ's return. And now it's, if, if this is the case, as I think it is, it's like he's saying, well, it's not really important because he died for us that whether we're awake or asleep, whether you're listening to my advice uh, about this uh, or not, uh, that we should be uh, saved and live uh, together with uh, him. So you might say, Paul took a risk to say this to them. I want you to be watchful. I want you to be awake. But Christ died to you that whether you're watchful or awake or not, whether you heed my advice uh, or not, he died in order that you might be uh, saved. You might say that 
Paul took a risk to say that to the Thessalonians. You might say, I'm taking a risk to say that to you because I want you to be watchful. I want you to be awake. Or I'm taking a risk to say that to myself, that Christ died for me, uh, that whether I'm awake or asleep, uh, that I might live together with uh, him. But let me tell you this on the other hand. Let me tell you on the other hand, and that is that Paul took no risk at all, and the Holy Spirit took no risk at all, except to remove the wrong kind of watchfulness from the Thessalonians, the kind of watchfulness that's done to win God's favor, or the kind of watchfulness that flows out of a lack of assurance. Because Paul's convinced that grace transforms, that grace transforms, that the free favor of God given transforms and in a way that the law doesn't transform. And the law is different from grace. The law is you must give something in order to get something. And Paul is convinced that grace transforms and the law doesn't. But in order for grace to transform, it needs to shock you. It needs to shock you in order to uh, uh, transform. It needs to shock your sensibilities of what is even uh, fitting or what you might even think of is fair. Grace needs to make you ask and even have good reason to ask, shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul asked that very question when he explains grace in Romans chapter 6. When he asked that question, shall I continue in sin that grace may uh, abound? He answers the question, may it never be, but the reason he gives is not because of what you need to do in order to get grace. No, the reason why he says, may it never be, is because of the resurrection of Christ. That is because grace slays the old you with Christ in order to raise you up again in the resurrection power of Christ, in the power of uh, his, his love. What man needs is not a, a shallow repurposing of his life, but something much deeper, something that goes to the very heart, and that is repentance. And repentance comes from hearing and believing uh, the gospel. And so when you hear the sound of someone, hopefully your own soul, taking God at his word to say, I'm forgiven. I'm free. Christ died for me. Whether I, whether I, I live, whether, whether I'm awake or asleep, whether I've been o- obedient to him as I should be or whether I've, I've been lax in my obedience, He's died for me that I might live uh, together with him. When you hear someone rejoicing in that, that's the sound of someone dying to themselves. That's a sign of someone who's who's uh, truly repentant of uh, sin at the deepest level. And so when Paul says this to the Thessalonians and, and uh, uh, tells them uh, this, he's not risking that this is going to result in no fruit for them. He's not re- uh, risking that this is going to result in no watchfulness. No spiritual awakeness and no spiritual uh, sensitivity. Not because he doesn't really mean what he says here. He died for you that whether you're awake or asleep, we will live together with him. But he's, he, he is not risking this because he knows that grace works every time. Grace works every time. Uh, back to Romans uh, chapter 5. Grace doesn't just abound all the more where sin abounded. That's a wonderful thought. And it's a truth thought, but Paul doesn't stop there. He says, grace reigns where sin once reigned. And in fact, sin can be shaken off in no other way. And real fruit, like the fruit of the watchfulness that Paul wants to uh, 
to bring about in uh, the Thessalonians. The real fruit can be produced in no other way than for grace to reign. But in order for grace to reign, it really needs to be grace, not a watered-down version of law. And so Paul puts this in a very stark, even a shocking way, a way that we're uh, to grapple with. He died for us, whether we're awake or asleep, whether you've really listened to what I'm saying or whether whether you've uh, been lax, he's found you lax uh, in it, that we will live uh, together with him. In a way, the whole argument of the letter leads up to this point, leads up to this problematic paradox that he, he writes here, who died for us so that whether we are awake uh, or asleep, we will live uh, together with him. When Paul gets past this point uh, in the letter, he doesn't have any more arguments. He just has some quick exhortations, and that's the way that he ends uh, a lot of his letter. Uh, in, in a way, this little paradox here is the deepest part of this um, of this uh, epistle. It's only this truth that can produce the actual watchfulness that flows out of assurance and total assurance of salvation, which is not dependent on our behavior. It's dependent on Christ, dependent on the death of Christ on uh, the cross. So uh, this is just what the Thessalonians needed to hear to grow out of the wrong kind of watchfulness, which is actually a fruit of the flesh, which is actually a hindrance to the rest of the Christian life and to grow into the kind of watchfulness that is the fruit of the spirit. It's the fruit of someone who's been set free from uh, the guilt and the power of, uh, of, of sin. Paul says in verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. He says, encourage one another with the gospel, with the gospel that Christ died for you, with the gospel that your sins are forgiven completely, with the uh, gospel, the good news that you're free, with the good news that your darkest fears and suspicions about God and his day that is coming aren't true and come from the tempter, come from uh, the father of lies. So let me, let me end where I began uh, this morning. And that is, are you watching for Christ's return? Are you watching for Christ's return? You should be. You're a child of the day. You should put on behaviors that fit the day. And one of those is watchfulness. Watchfulness, awakeness. So watchfulness for uh, Christ's uh, return. But let me ask you this too. Why are you watching for his return? And it matters why you're watching for his return. Are you watching because of a lack of assurance of salvation? Or are you watching out of, uh, with a watchfulness that flows out of assurance of uh, salvation. What's true of watchfulness here is true of every aspect that's commanded in the whole uh, Christian life. What would you do if you really believed, even with faith as a mustard seed, that the holy God of the universe loves you and is on your side? Would that make you want to live a life of love, a life of grace, like he's loving and like he is uh, gracious? Would it make you want to keep yourself pure from sin, live in the daylight instead of living in the darkness? Would it want to make you wait for his son, the son of this God of grace? Would it make you want to stop minimizing your sin? maybe at the expense of uh, uh, judging others uh, around you, but instead be deeply impressed
by your sin as it's revealed in the light of what Christ has done in order to annihilate and to forgive your sin. Well, you need to hear the word of the gospel. Believe the word of the gospel, and it's the word of grace, amazing grace. And then let that grace reign, and then act like a child of the day. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that we are children of the day, and we pray that you might uh, help us to put on all the behaviors of the day. And uh, we pray that we might watch for Christ uh, in the way that he's commanded us, not with dread, not with wondering if his sacrifice uh, is effective uh, for us, but watchfulness with the joy that our sins are completely forgiven uh, in Christ. And uh, we pray that you might cause us to stand uh, in that assurance, to rest in that assurance, so that it might invigorate uh, our entire Christian life of obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.